Repetition's a good teacher, that's what they say. If you want to learn something, you do it over and over and over. The same thing applies to hearing a particular message or sermon, that repetition can be a good thing. So I want to take us back uh, to a few weeks ago where we set the stage for understanding some principles about how we read the Gospel of Mark. These are some things you've already seen, but we really need to, we need to go back around to, to a couple of these things. So we understand how to understand a dense, sensitive passage today. Probably the most sensitive we have dealt with up to this point uh, in the Gospel of Mark. So let's, let's do a quick review uh, of a couple principles that we really need to have in place before we step into our passage today. The first is that context, you, we always want to be considering context before content. Context before content. So a way of thinking about this is that we want to understand the context of a passage where it sits in the story, then understand the content. So we're always considering what has come before, and we have an eye to what's coming after. Let me put this in a real-life example of a story. Let's take a look at a piece of the story in the middle of the story. She looked lovingly into her toddler's eyes. That's the middle of the story. Now, you really can't understand that until you understand what is around that part of the story. If we were going to study that, let's understand the context before we get to the content. Here's the story. He had cried most of the morning, but now he was in his high chair enjoying his milk. She looked lovingly into her toddler's eyes. After he finished, she put him down on the floor. He then turned smiling and ran into the bathroom hoping to unroll all the toilet paper. Again, this is a made-up story. We've never experienced this in the Yates household. Definitely not with a 13-month-old who, you know, runs everywhere. Um, but to understand what it means for her to look lovingly in her toddler's eyes, it's helpful to have the context on either side of that passage. Now, the same thing goes for the Gospel of Mark. There are these things that we are studying that we need to understand what is coming before and after. So context before content. The other thing we need to understand is we need to see the theme, see the theme. So a couple themes that we have seen in the Gospel of Mark, all the way from the beginning, if we note, these themes are introduced early in Mark's Gospel. They grow more prominent as the story develops, culminating at the end. A couple of them that we've already seen is conflict is definitely a theme we see between, between light and darkness, between Jesus and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. These things we see, that's a theme we see. Oh, Humility is another theme, and we watch that theme develop in the story. So those are two really important principles before we ever dig uh, into our passage today. So again, that's content before, before, uh, context before content, and that's see the theme. Both those are going to be important today. So we're going to pick up, we're going to start in Mark chapter 10. We enter Mark 10 today. And we have just, we've just studied Jesus teaching about amputations and salt and, and peace and, and it's this weird passage where a lot of things were thrown together. But where we were two weeks ago, right before the passage this morning, is that Jesus was teaching us something about what it means to remove things in the heart. Things that are in the heart that are causing lots of trouble, causing stumbling, how we remove those. That's what Jesus was talking about when he started talking about cutting off your hands and your foot and gouging your eyes out. He's dealing with taking things from the inside that are causing stumbling. He's dealing with the heart. So just before our passage, Jesus is dealing 
with the heart in a previous section of the gospel. Now we pick up Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we pick up verse 1. Jesus then left that place, and he went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they will no longer... They, will, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. We'll just stop right there. You see why this is a sensitive passage? This is a weighty passage right here. And so we stop there, we stop there, because that right there, you know, as, as I see it, that looks like a passage. Like that looks like a whole passage that we would take in and study. If you have a physical Bible, like, like mine right here, it actually has a subsection. It has divorce, and then we go over to another section, another section, so it appears that's one unit. But here we need to understand context before content. A key piece of the Gospel of Mark is that he sets up scenes for us to watch. Kind of like a movie where you know you're in one scene and then the camera will break and then you're in a different location or you're with new characters and the scene has changed. Mark will change the scene and he wants the reader to understand a scene as a unit. And typically we break up these scenes as we've studied along the way. But today we need to see the unit. The way Mark will tip us off that we have a scene change is he has Jesus on the move. So there's geographic movement, okay? Now, we can put that slide up about geographic movement. So he, Mark uses geographic movement to, to tip us off that there's been a scene change. So when I go back to chapter 9, for example, in verse 2, he says, in one scene change, he says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with them and led them up on a high mountain. And then you have the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 14, scene change, when they came to the other disciples. That's when they came off the mountain. Then we get another scene change in chapter 9, verse 30, when they left that place and passed through Galilee. We then had another scene change when we started chapter 10 when we read, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea. A question you and I need to be asking as readers is, when's the next scene change? It's not at verse 13. Verse 13 is not the next scene change. That's not what comes right after that teaching on divorce. The scene change comes in verse 17. We can put that next piece up. It's when we read, as Jesus started on his way. So there's something happening between verse 12 where he says something about if you divorce, remarry, commit adultery, and verse 17. It's the verses in between we got to pay attention to. That's what Mark wants the reader to see. It's a unit. So we got to pick up now verses 13 through 16. 
if we're going to understand the passage in its context. Verse verse 13, this is just after Jesus, in the house with the disciples, same scene, teaching them about divorce and remarriage. It picks up, verse 13, no break. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. Then we will have verse 17, as Jesus started on his way. That's very important for us to understand. So we're going to put it up here. We're going to put it up here so we say it just the way we want to. Want us to understand that Mark 10, 1 through 16 continues to develop the theme of humility. That is, the kingdom of God is open to the humble but closed to the proud. Therefore, Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce is more about the heart and inner transformation than it is about establishing a rule book for Christians to follow. Very important to understand this. As I read this unit, it's not that there aren't rules or principles in place, but Jesus is driving for the heart, which would follow a theme we've already seen play out. It also follows in a pattern Mark is building because the passage that just came before this was something Jesus wanted to say about the heart. And so we need to come into this very sensitive passage with a lot of compassion, a lot of grace, and an understanding that Jesus is driving for something deeper than just a bunch of legalism or some law book that you and I are supposed to follow and better figure out if we're keeping the rules or not. There's something deeper here. So that means that the main characters in this passage are not marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Like that's not, those aren't the, that's not the cast of characters Mark wants us to see. The cast of characters are the little children, the disciples, and the Pharisees. And so we're going to just take them in that order. Take them in that order. So what we see is that Jesus commends, the one group he commends in this unit, in this scene, are the children. Are the children. And he actually says this this commendation, this, this is so important that if you don't, you don't receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you can't get in. So what is it about a child that would be so important for us to get? Well, I think there's a few things. There's a lot. There's a lot. But I think there's a few things we can, we can take away from looking at little children. I'm going to say there's, there's three in particular. I think a child trusts. A child trusts inherently. Now, I know that can get broken in many different ways in our world, but inherently, a child trusts. A child also receives happily. This is a big deal. How many times do you receive help happily? Not often, right? That's why we struggle to ask for help. Something happens inside of us as we grow up, and sin poisons the heart more and more where we don't like receiving help because it makes us look weak. Children don't have that problem. They don't mind asking for everything and anything and then receiving happily. they got no problem with that, right? Like it gets annoying if they have so little problem with it. it. All under the grace of Jesus, yes. I mean, I don't get annoyed. I just talk in for Tess. Um, I mean, I got no problem like a perfect parent. Uh, She's not here. We'll all keep that between us. All right. Um, 
And then a child also not only receives happily, but gives abundantly, right? Now, surely, you know, we all know children, it doesn't take long for them to, like, take ownership, mine, mine, mine. But in general, children give abundantly. And these are things that we see in children. You know what I see when I look at Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like Trinity? I see this, this is the kind of relationship they have. Where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, one God, that they and their community from eternity, you know what? They're trusting and they're receiving and they're giving. It's like this dance of love that has all three of those things working together. You know what happens when our relationships are at their best? All three of those are working. We're trusting, we're receiving, and we're giving. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. That's why your relationships work in ordinary life when those things are kicking and they're doing well. Because that's the, that's the kingdom of God. It's what it's made of. And if you can't come with that, well, then you're not going to like the kingdom of God. Because it's mistrust, it's manipulation, it's deception, it's lying. Those are the things that begin to break relationships apart. Well, that's not the kingdom of God. And so you've got to be like a child to come into the kingdom. And what Mark does is, by putting this to, these things together... What he's doing is he is allowing the disciples and the Pharisees to sit as a contrast to these little children. So, so consider the disciples in all of this. The disciples are trying to put Jesus in this royal box. Remember, they want Jesus to be king. They think he's going to be like a really powerful king one day who kicks Rome out of Judea, out of Jerusalem. And he's going to reign. He's going to be like the president of all presidents. So what do you, if you're next to who you think is going to be president of presidents... You're thinking, how do I get power? How can I be great? And we know the disciples, they want to be great. Remember what happened just verses before this. Chapter 9, verse 33 through 34. Remember the context. Mark recorded this. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, this is Jesus asking the disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. So when we get to this, this moment in Mark chapter 10, when these little children are coming, the disciples don't want to have anything to do with it because that doesn't fit the box. Jesus is supposed to be powerful king. You don't have children around you if you are a powerful king. Children can't help you. They don't leverage power for you. So you, don't, you have no use for them. But Jesus turns that upside down. What's interesting is that you this, this last this last uh, main character in the, in the scene are the Pharisees. And they're dealing with some of the same issues the disciples are. They just have no interest in fixing it. So the, Mark records when he tells us about the Pharisees, he tells us that they actually came to Jesus trying to trap him. Because the Pharisees had a lot of rules in place. They legislated people's lives there in Judea. I mean, they had rule after rule after rule, and then they laid the God card on top of all of it, saying, if you don't do what we say, to hell with you. Literally. You will be under God's judgment. His wrath, you have no part of him if you don't follow rule, 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 rule. They had over 600 rules that they had people keeping. And Jesus came in, and he broke the mold. Jesus didn't come in saying, here, let me fit in your box, Pharisees. Jesus broke their box. He was breaking everybody's boxes. You weren't going to put Jesus in your own man-made box. And so what happens is the Pharisees then try to catch him 
by having him step into a hot debate of the day. It's one about marriage and, and divorce and remarriage. And I think here Mark inserts the story, not because we need to have a deep understanding of marriage and divorce and remarriage, but because it's a wonderful case study of a broader principle about the kingdom of God. Not that the teaching is not important, but there is a deeper issue in play. And so here is the case study. It's this teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And they ask him, like, when is it lawful? And that's really important. Like, when is it lawful? You see, they want Jesus to step into a debate of that day. And there was debate about when you could give someone a certificate of divorce, this legal document. When could you give that to your spouse to send them away? Now, all this debate is surrounding a particular passage in the Old Testament. So let me take it, let's take a look at the passage, Deuteronomy 24. They all knew their Old Testament well. This is the passage people were debating, the scholars of the day. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, dot, dot, dot. So that's like a sentence. It keeps going. I'm just going to stop it there. Because the debate is what is indecent about the spouse that can allow for the divorce. Now, some would say that indecent meant some type of unfaithfulness, like an affair. But many others said that it could be something as trivial as burning your spouse's eggs that you give them in the morning. It could be not brushing your hair the right way. It could be just not feeling right that day. And all of a sudden, certificate of divorce. It could be that easy. It might be what we call in our day a no-cause a, a no divorce. You just, you just don't feel like it. And irreconcilable differences. And then, boom, divorce. And they want Jesus to step into this debate so they can catch him in their many laws that they have created and say, ha, you're not keeping the law that we have established for the people. What Jesus does is he goes back to the beginning. And he says, actually, it was in the beginning that we see what marriage is supposed to be. It's a man, it's a woman. And when those two come together, two become one. And that means when two people become one flesh, you can't just start ripping that apart without any consequences. When they are married, they are one, and God never ever intended for two to be pulled apart. But he also didn't intend for sin to enter the world either. So can we keep this in mind, right? Okay, so we need to understand broader context, all right? So we're not going to be sitting in judgment right here, okay? This is just a matter of the intention was that two become one, you don't pull them apart. But God also had the intention that the world would be full of love and light, but it didn't take long, right, that that all got broken. And sin poisoned the water of creation. And it got into the heart. And Jesus understands this. And you can understand that when sin gets into the heart and it moves into marriages, you know what happens? They start breaking. They start dissolving. Things go wrong. And so Jesus, Jesus understood and acknowledged that. Remember what he said in verse 5. Take a look again, just 10.5. At the heart of it, Jesus said this, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. So that tells us something very important about divorce that we really need to get our hands on because when we take the next few steps together on this teaching, we need to understand this. Take a look. I want to make sure we say it precisely. 
divorce, in its intention, divorce was a legal tool to formally dissolve a marriage that had already dissolved internally because of unfaithfulness or abuse. Because what do you do in ancient Israel when you have marriages coming together and yet you have men going off and sleeping with other women or women going and sleeping with other men or you have men who are hitting their wives, kicking them, punching them? What do you do when a marriage, when, when one flesh begins to dissolve but they legally are bound together? What do you do when that happens? Well, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed for a legal tool to dissolve that relationship legally, formally, often for the protection of the woman. But it could be for the, for the man as well. But I, hope, I want you to see, divorce was never the intention, but a legal tool to dissolve something that had already dissolved. That was, that was going to be the intention of having to use this tool that should have never been in the world to begin with, but you have to because you got sin. It's interesting that Jesus in another place, and we're not going to study the context because there's more going on here, but in another place, Jesus himself acknowledges this very thing. Matthew 19, take a look. Matthew 19, verse 9, he says this, And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Now, don't get caught up on the man-woman thing that looks like he's picking on the wife here. But I want you to see that Jesus himself acknowledges that not all divorce is equal. There is a place for divorce in a broken world where relationships where two have become one, something is dissolving that, but legally they're still bound together, which can be quite abusive, so there had to be a way of dissolving it legally, which is the certificate of divorce. But that is not the problem Jesus is dealing with when he has a private teaching with his disciples. You see, it didn't take long for that certificate of divorce to get abused. And people could divorce for no cause and cause a lot of problems. So let's make sure we understand this point. Let's go to this next slide. The problem Jesus is tackling is that over time, people began to use divorce as a way of breaking their marriages legally for whatever reason they wanted. And then they would leverage the Bible to justify their divorce. And that's how, that's how broken this got. So when Jesus has this private teaching with his disciples about the marriage, a, a marriage, a divorce, and a remarriage, it's in the context of divorce, a particular kind of divorce, a flippant divorce. Take a look, verse 11 and 12. Just, just, just remember what Jesus says. In our passage today, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. It's a tough teaching. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't just challenge the man. He challenges the woman. Very important. Because in that world, men hold, held most of the legal power. And so a woman could be abused by being put away, by being divorced flippantly because she would be considered dirty, used up goods. No one would want to marry a woman like that. And so what are her options at that point to make a living? You're going to have to have a family member bring you in. You're going to have to resort to prostitution or you'll be homeless begging. I mean, these are your options in play here. 
if a man just throws his wife away. Interestingly, that he also challenges the woman too. This is not nearly as common that a woman would give a certificate of divorce and then the woman would like divorce, like then the woman's at cause here would cause it. Interestingly, there was a major divorce at that time that we've already read about where the woman divorced the man. Someone challenged that divorce, and you know what happened? They had their head cut off. Remember what happened just a few chapters before where, where we have a woman divorcing a man, a powerful man. Powerful woman divorcing a powerful man, then marrying another powerful man. Just let's remember, Mark chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. This is the context in part of what Jesus says in those verses in chapter 10. He has this in mind. Mark chapter 6, 17 through 19, for Herod, King Herod, himself had given orders to have John, that's John the Baptist, arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So guess who's mad, by the way, in all of this? So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Herodias wrote a certificate of divorce to, to Philip so that she can then marry Herod, Philip's brother. Jesus is dealing with flippant divorces, and he challenges them. He challenges what we might call no-cause divorces. I want to say this next thing, again, very concisely and clearly. Take a look. Here's a summary of this. I believe, and yes, there's debate among scholars, but in my reading and my working through this, here's where I'm standing. I believe Jesus is referring to the kind of flippant divorce that was running rampant in his day. People were using divorce as a legal weapon to inexcusably break the marriage bond. In these cases, divorce and remarriage were no different than having an affair while married. Because the two were one, they used to divorce to break the bond legally while they still, while they still stood as one spiritually. Now, eventually, that also began to dissolve. But I want us to understand that there's nuance here. There's context to the teaching. Very important for us to understand. And you, would, you, you, you won't be surprised then that because Mark puts the children, the children's section in this scene, we know Jesus is driving for something deeper. This is what I'd say. This is what I would say Jesus is driving for. For Jesus, the fundamental problem is not divorce, remarriage, and adultery. It's the hardness of the human heart from which all these things come. And wouldn't it be great if there was a place somewhere in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus made that just really clear? Like where he said, hey, all these bad things, they come from inside of you. So that we knew that I was teaching you something correct. You know, something true. If only we had a passage in the Gospel of Mark. Well, we do. You knew that was coming. I mean, I really tried to set that up, but okay, let's go. Mark chapter 7, we've been here before. Mark chapter 7, 15 and 20 through 23. We have to have this passage in mind, as we come to Mark 10, there's a reason Mark put it early. Jesus said this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. 
And he went on, what comes out of a person is that which defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You know what I don't see on that list, by the way? And you would think it should be there by how some people talk. I don't see divorce. And I don't see remarriage. You know why? Because fundamentally, those two things are symptoms of something deeper, something more broken inside. And so we need to understand that Jesus is dealing with fundamental, a fundamental issue here. So that would mean then that the, the, the solution has got to be something inside. I want to say it this way. The way to fix broken marriages, and may I say all other relationships, is not by legalism or rule-keeping. Now, I like, roles are fine, but don't you think legalism or beating someone up with more and more rules is going to fix them? It's by having a changed heart. That's what Jesus is always driving for. You can keep all the rules and have a really ugly heart, but you can't have a good heart and break all the rules. If you get a good heart, you're going to get everything else thrown in. It's like when Paul, we don't have this slide up here. It's like when Paul lists all the fruit of the Spirit, and it's like all those great things, joy and love and patience and humility, all those things. And he says, against these, there is no law. Because if you get a good heart, you're going to, everything else is going to flow. Everything else will work out. But out of the bad heart grows all these other things. And so we need to understand this as we consider divorce and remarriage. We need to come to that issue. It's really what we're dealing with in this passage is what's your heart like? Dallas Willard, one of my mentors, I never met him, but I've read all of his books, and he's dead, so I never will meet him. But man, he nails it on this. Here's what Dallas Willard says. Hard hearts may make divorce necessary to avoid greater harm. I just want to pause and just read that again, okay? Hard hearts may make divorce necessary to avoid greater harm and hence make it permissible. But kingdom hearts are not hard. And they together can find ways to bear with each other, to speak truth and love, to change, often through times of great pain and distress, until the tender intimacy of mutual covenant-framed love finds a way for the two lives to remain one beautifully and increasingly. All right. A lot going on there. So let's take all that Bible teaching and let's get it down on the ground where you live. Let's make some application. I must start this application section with a quote from Dallas Willard because he said it better than me, and I want to give him credit where credit's due. He said it this way. I think we need to start here. We must resist any attempt to classify divorce as a special, irredeemable form of wickedness. This is such a sensitive issue because there are so many different ways we get to it. And yet, to hear some people talk, you would think a divorced person is the most dirty, wicked person to, to, to live or to exist here on earth. As if you can't come back from that. And I'm just going to say, that's fooey. That's just dumb. That's not right. That's not the heart of Jesus here. Just as much as looking at a woman lustfully makes me an adulterer and I guess I'm done for. That's not what that teaching meant when Jesus said it. 
And so we need to come to this, we need to come to this understanding that sometimes, sometimes divorce is really the best option. You, sometimes, sometimes women are being beat in their home for years. And I'm just going to tell you this, I can't sit with Jesus for as long as I've sat with him or as a human being and look at that woman and say, I'm so sorry, you're not allowed to divorce. Good luck tonight. I can't say that. I just can't. I don't think that's the heart of Jesus. Because in those situations, the relationship is already dissolved spiritually. And so the divorce is a legal way of breaking that bond that has already been broken. Now, I'll also say on the other side of this, that there are many people who divorce that need to stick it out, that should have st stuck it out. And we've got to be very clear about that. Just because your spouse doesn't look as good as they looked 20 years ago, that's no reason that you can divorce them. That's not allowed. And if you have any thought that looking at pornography is acceptable, it never is. It never was, never is, and never will be. There is no justification for ever looking at another person sexually beyond your spouse. If you're single, I believe that God, that God can still be with you in your singleness. And it, it can be a gift. A hard gift, I don't even understand it, so I'm speaking out of my lane here. But I do know, I do know that it is never appropriate to begin to objectify or use someone sexually that is not bound to you as one flesh. Never. And I also know that some of you have lost spouses, and so your singleness is because you've lost your spouse. And so you live into that and let God help you. And I don't know exactly what all that means. Listen, I know I'm supposed to have all the answers. No, I don't. I don't know what it's like to lose a spouse and have to live single without the touch of a spouse. But I know, but I know this, that it's never appropriate to go outside the lane and go try to find touch or find sexual pleasure outside of a marriage where it's one flesh. And so you don't just flippantly throw around the divorce threat. You don't, you don't, you don't just on a whim say, I'm done with you. An affair is never appropriate. Ever. Never. That's just not, like, there, you can't get that out of any reasonable thinking, particularly when it comes to Jesus in ordinary life. You're just not going to get it. But I want us to understand, don't make divorce the ca into a category that's irredeemable and wicked. We just don't do that. That's not what we're going to do. All right, so let's keep this next one in mind. I've already started stepping in this direction. I want to be very clear here because this is going to hit everybody. There are countless circumstances and scenarios that involve marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and they should be considered and handled with love, grace, prayer, and wise counsel. I can run through numerous scenarios, all different, that have to do with this subject. And so we do not lay down strict rules without taking the person into account. This is very sensitive for people. You know there are people even in our church that didn't want a divorce, but what were they supposed to do? Their spouse left them. You know that. Well, we do not. We don't cast these people out. We walk, them with, we walk with them gracefully. You know, there might even be people among us that are already cheating, having affairs, and they want to come back in, and that spouse may want to leave them. We might want to help them stay together because of repentance. But I'm going to just tell you, I'm not going to stand up here and give you a bunch of rules. I'm not going to lay out this guidebook because these are the things that must be handled carefully and gently. That's how you shepherd people. 
And so, yes, there are some really solid boundaries on this topic. But there are a lot of nuances. And there's a lot of ways abuse happens in a home. And manipulation happens. And deceit happens. And you know what? Other places in the Bible, there's teachings on what happens if you're a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves. There's teachings on this. But I want you to understand, today was not meant to give you the full scope of this topic. What I want you to hear is that in the end, God will land on grace and forgiveness and mercy as you walk in the kingdom. As you walk in the kingdom. Now, you can't have a hard heart saying, Forget that, I'm doing what I want. Or I know I was right, I don't need God's approval. Like, those, that's not the spirit we walk into this topic. I'm long-winded on this because, it's so, because this is so sensitive. But we land in grace here with boundaries, with boundaries. So let's get to the heart, let's get to the heart of the issue when we get, uh, as we kind of close out this application part. I think this is really where we're going to all land. And every one of us land here. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're single, divorced, in separation currently. It doesn't matter where you are relationally. We all are walking here to this application. Jesus is primarily concerned with our heart. Who are we becoming on the inside? Because that is what it looks like to start to become a child who can receive the kingdom. Which at the end is where the unit, this piece of the passage, where Mark wants to drive us and where Jesus moves the story. So you know how you do that? Well, a lot of different ways. But there's one passage. We did it two weeks ago. Repetition, good teacher. Let's go through it one more time because I think this is an example of the Apostle Paul trying to do this for Christians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Here's what he tells them. Christians trying to get their heart right. He tells them, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's a picture of a child receiving the kingdom. That's, this is where we move. We move to a place where we're putting on compassion, where we're bearing with each other, which, by the way, means we don't always like each other. Like, that's the other side of that. And so we learn to bear with each other. It means we begin to forgive one another. We don't hold bitterness. We're not holding debt over someone's head. We move in the way of love. We receive the kingdom like a child. And so what would you do then if you want to take a next step out of all this? Like, how do you get a next step out of a passage that has so much to do with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Well, you get to the heart of all these things. And you pick up this teaching about children. And you do this. Here's our next step. Look for small moments. Look for small moments this week. Look for small moments to trust more, to receive help, and to give grace. Listen, what I'm not trying to do this morning is fix every marriage or fix, or fix your past. I can't do that. God has a way of working on those things and usually takes a lot of time, a lot of time. But I do know, no matter where you find yourself in any of your relationships, that the way we become more like children, one way we can do it is look for small moments. And I mean literally, like when you're in your kitchen this week and your child annoys you, this seems to be a theme. I promise you, I do love my children. But, but you, you, have, you have this little child come in 
okay, bubbling with annoyance here, you look in that small moment and you find an opportunity. You find an opportunity there to give, to somehow give, maybe give grace somehow. Or maybe you're struggling this week. Something small, like, like, you, you, like you're just not happy. Like you just feel bad. You didn't have a good night's sleep. And someone, a friend, a spouse, maybe your kid, they want to help you. Receive it. Just receive it. Don't say, I don't need help. Don't, don't do that. Now, usually we don't say it that, that bluntly. Usually we have a different way of saying we don't want help. Just find a small moment. Like, listen, we're not trying to be Hercules here. We're not going to be super Christians in a day. Just find like small moments in your week. Like right where you're living. Like you know where you live and what your relationships look like. Find some small moments and trust a little bit more. Give someone the benefit of the doubt. Like literally, give them the benefit of the doubt. Not like all week, just like in that moment. And then you can receive help. And then you give. Just give grace somehow. Again, you're not trying to be Hercules. You're not trying to be Billy Graham. You're, like, you're not trying to be super Christian this week. You're trying to take this teaching on children in the kingdom, find some small moments, and just move a little further down the road. Do the next right thing, and God will bail you out. Let's pray. To our Father who is near us, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these teachings of Jesus. And we thank you that Mark put it all together for us. We pray that you would help us, that you would heal whatever scars sit on our heart, that you would help bring healing and forgiveness. Would you just also make marriages that are working, make them stronger? There's a lot of different, there are a lot of different circumstances in this room. So move in a way that is appropriate and gentle. And we pray that under the name of Jesus and his authority. And together we say, amen.